the lowest point was I'd, I'd ended up, I was sitting in, I very young, can almost feel walls around me now. I ended up in uh, a jail cell um, at Hammersmith Police Station, um, uh, charged with quite a serious event. And, and it was there, I can almost remember thinking that I thought everything was a game um, until then. And all of a sudden, as my whole world came crashing, crashing down around me, everything all of a sudden got very, very real. Hello, beautiful people. On today's podcast, we have the wonderful Joe Bonington. Joe is the founder of Joe's Base Camp and Australia's leading strength and conditioning specialist in outdoor wilderness and adventure sports and activities. Joe helps adventurers, extreme athletes and ordinary people achieve their goals and dreams, such as skiing to the North Pole, running the Sahara, Gobi and Atacama deserts, swimming the English Channel, kayaking rivers hundreds of kilometres from source to sea and competing in ultramarathon events. Significantly, Joe has trained more Everest summiteers than any other Australian. Joe writes for magazines such as Australian Geographic Adventure, has featured on several TV programs, runs corporate programs, and is an experienced speaker and storyteller. Joe is also an ambassador for the Australian Himalayan Foundation and passionate about helping the mountain people of the Himalayas with initiatives around education, health, conservation, and climate change. What I personally love about this conversation is Joe's vulnerability in sharing his story. Joe is the son of a famous mountaineer, Sir Chris Bonington. And though Joe deeply respected his father and his achievements, Joe came to lose his way in his younger years through the effects of having a famous father on him and his family. Finding relief through drugs, alcohol and petty crime. Joe's story is certainly one from breakdown to breakthrough and I think such an important real-world example of the possibility of choosing a new path in every moment of your life. At any point you have led yourself and or others down the wrong path, there was always the opportunity to lead yourself and others down the right one. I read recently that the ego fears you ever experiencing a crisis because a crisis propels you further than the limitations of safety and comfort that the ego creates for you. And it is in these moments of crisis that we come to face who we truly are. Outside of the cages, we recognize that the ego is simply a form of constraint. It is an illusion and it is not you. I would love to shout out Red Wine Success leaving an Apple podcast review sharing that they love listening to the guests share their raw, relatable, and inspiring thoughts and stories. In a similar way, if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, share with friends and family, become part of the To Be Human Collective, and enjoy this conversation with the lovely Joe Bonington. Welcome to the To Be Human podcast, Joe. Hi, how are we doing? I'm very well, thank you. It's exciting to have you, Joe. So, Joe, I was listening to a podcast that you were on with Australian Geographic, and you said 
You were talking about the pressures of having a famous dad and an unconventional upbringing. So I would love to know more about the younger version of Joe, who, were, who was feeling those pressures of having a famous dad and an unconventional upbringing. Mm, okay. Um, so my... The, when I was... It depends on on when you how far back you want to go so i think from my from my mid-teens i actually started feeling it as pressure but with all these things um it's the way we react to things is never or not necessarily just one instant it's a it's a build of things and so over the whole of my childhood there's, there's times when I can't associate feelings to, but I can remember visually. You know, I can remember visually seeing uh, the reaction when um, my mum had received a telegram saying that somebody had been killed. Um, I can remember uh, other expeditions um going to the airport um, and people clinging on to each other, husbands and wives clinging on to each other um, emotionally and, and crying and sobbing because, again, somebody else had been killed. Um, I can remember feeling um, the fear um as well as excitement of the preparation for, for dad going on expeditions. So all of that was in my, my much younger years, let's say pre-teens. The pressure came and when it started to manifest itself, um, like for so many of us actually happened in my teens. When, when we start to change, we start um, adding, um, uh, our perceptions start to change and we start to create values, uh, our own values around the world and, and what, what things mean and what things have meant to us. So, <clears throat> so I think the groundwork had been set, but it wasn't until the teens that, uh, things started to manifest themselves and, yeah, I could have gone um, one of a couple of ways, and I um, I just started to become a very troublesome teenager. <clears throat> Sorry, um, and uh, and I, I started getting myself into a lot of of trouble. You know, I was. Um, I'm not sure if I was attention seeking or just trying to take make my own mark on the world. Um, I was definitely a mixed up kid um, and definitely struggling. I mean, it, it's, I, I look back and, you know, we, we think that, you know, people who get into trouble and people who end up involved in drugs, dr drugs drink, crime, et cetera, come from broken homes and, and all of that. And I, uh, ours was a very unorthodox home, but I had a 
parents who loved each other um, wholly. They they were passionately in love with each other, um, and you know they they were married for fifty years until my until my mum's death, um, and and they were both very very loving. They were both very very caring. They both encouraged me and my brother um, uh, in all that we uh, did. No, not not in all that we did, in all the good things that we did, um, and. Uh, and yet, both me and my brother, we both went off the rails. Um, and, uh, yeah. So having, because I'm really curious because, you know, your father is is very well respected when it comes to being, you know, in expeditions. And as a child, as you're sort of sharing, you know, it is very confusing because these are high-risk situations that people are going into and death is a very real thing. What was the experience like for you when you were younger and, you know, having a father that would go away for long amounts of time? You know, were you ever questioning whether he would come home? Yes. Yeah, 100%. So we... Um, and this was, you remember, this is back, back in the day. So I, you know, I'm, I'm 54 now. I was, um, when he was already a very well-established mountaineer and, you know, being, you know, received as a guest at Buckingham Palace and all this kind of stuff in the, through the, the 50s and the 60s. Um, and then his, his real big ones that made his mark on the world as opposed to, to just the UK climbing scene um, were happening in the, both his uh, north face of the Eiger in the 60s, but then that his um, uh, conquering of the, the south face of Annapurna in 1970, um, when I would have been about three, and then his Everest expeditions, um, which were uh, the southwest face, which hadn't at that time been climbed, um, in 72 and then 75. Uh, and it's the 75 that they finally got to do it, you know. So by that time, I was uh, about eight. <clears throat> and um, I have a lot of, a lot of memories around, around that. And I can remember, um, so I can remember the, f- the first time I can actually remember about that this was dangerous was actually in 72. So I'd have only been about five, but I I just have vague memory of, of that something really bad had happened. Um, and my dad's long-term friend, uh, Ian Clough, had been killed. Um, and I'm uh, oh, sorry, was that? Yeah, in 72. So, and then... Um, then by 75, um, when dad, when they, they succeeded in climbing Everest. Now, before that, I'd really, I'd started to make my own relationships as a small person with, with these climbers, with these big, hairy, bearded, um, craggy looking people who were all really exciting. Um, and, um, and one of them who, and I remember some more than others, particularly I remember the ones who actually paid 
us attention. Uh, and one of those was a, a guy called Mick Burke. Um, and he was he was a really, really engaging character. And I can remember that even though I was only eight. And I'd just built this relationship with uh, with him and, and can remember him distinctly. I, I can re- even remember he was um, a really, uh, he was a really hairy butt. And I can actually remember how seeing his, his stubbly face and just thinking, I can remember, uh, you know how you get snapshots of things when you were a kid, when you were kids, that I can remember just him having this really craggy, um, uh, stubble-covered face. And I can a- almost remember the, the the texture of it. He used to throw us around and play fight with us and, and all that when, that when he came up. Um, and then he never came back. And that was the... That was the first time that I got really, really upset, um, and and it was from there that I really started to realise. Well, hold on, when Dad goes, there's a chance that he's not coming back, and in in my eyes, things seem to have accelerated. He started going on a lot more. That that, that big Everest expedition had been a uh, a huge thing had taken up a, a lot of time. But then after that, he started doing, there was a lot more expeditions. There was a whole succession of expeditions over the next few years. And um, and we were still small. And I, I, can, I can almost remember thinking that, you know, it's almost better if... If somebody else, and this is the, the kind of the, the, is your, the twisted mind, if you, as you're trying to associate and, and disassociate things, that if maybe if somebody else's dad died, my dad would have to come home. Mm. You know, and that, that's that's the kind of process that a that an eight nine year old mind is going through, and all these kids because there was a whole load of us kids who used to play with each other, who were all the sons and, and daughters of climbers. Um, and these were my friend's parents that you're, you're kind of thinking in the back of the one, I want, I want my dad to, to come back. Does that mean that your dad can't? Mm. That's incredibly deep, Joe. Um, yeah, I know. Beautiful reflection. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really curious um, because, you know, I feel like with with children when they have, you know, quote-unquote famous parents or parents that have achieved a lot in their life, it tends to almost go two ways. The, the child becomes, you know, very invested in becoming like mm. them or very invested in going the other way. What do you think happened with you and your brother in terms of obviously as you're, you've shared earlier sort of going more down the the route of, you know, getting into trouble and sort of getting into more of the, you know, drugs and alcohol and that sort of direction? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, th- I, I don't know if it's a character thing or, or if it's potluck or, um, or what it is. It's, um, you know, you've got, say, 
you know, me on this side, then, then I look at um, uh, people like Peter Hillary. You know, so Peter Hillary, he, he went the opposite way to, to with his dad. Maybe his generational thing as well. You know, Peter Hillary's slightly older than, uh, than me. Um, and kind of falls in a, a generation in between. But, yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> it could have been a whole number of things. Um, you know, even uh, Dad, Dad was ridiculously famous at the time for, for, for a mountaineer. He's probably one of the first mountaineers. Or if he, actually, you know, he probably, yeah, he was the first mountaineer to kind of have that kind of, daily recognition and you know he was doing adverts on the telly for for Bovril and so unfortunately this is at that time when I was 12 13 and so I just got destroyed at school you know I was I was called Bovril boy but I wasn't just called Bovril boy by the kids I was called Bovril boy by the teachers mm. you know and so I just wanted to be anybody else except for Chris Bonington's son so I and I then uh, to a point I I wouldn't tell people what my surname was. Wow! I went for for a hell of a long time where it was just, uh, yeah, it was just just me. I just I didn't want to be so. So I I started running in the other direction. So I think that was partly nurtured by the environment I was in, and not necessarily by. By mum and dad. I think, yeah, the, that side had been a catalyst. But, yeah, if I'd have maybe been in a different, more nurturing external environment to the family, it could have been like Peter Hillary or, or, or whatever and, and, you know, wanting to follow in my father's footsteps, etc. Um, and, yeah, so, but uh, but I, I didn't. And I, I wanted to get as, as far away from that as possible. And I didn't have the, at the time, I didn't have the tools to, to cope. I, I was just dissatisfied. I hadn't discovered myself. I hadn't discovered what it was that I did want. I just know that I didn't want what dad, even though I loved him very much, I just didn't want what dad had to, to offer, which is such a shame. It must've been so, hurtful for dad because you know up until that point I used to go climbing with him all the time you know and uh we used to go and do things together and I spent the time romping over the hills and um and all this and then all of a sudden as a sulky teenager I I just went in the opposite direction as far away as I could and when you were sort of in the space of, you know, taking drugs, drinking alcohol, getting in trouble with the law. What did you learn about yourself through that experience? Um, that I'm a leader. <laughs> I, 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 I Whatever you do. Lead, lead, I could lead people <laughs> down the wrong path. Um, I was, that means yeah, you could I lead was, them down the right as well, huh? <laughs> exa exactly, exactly. No, the, I said, so you know, if we go... If we just shoot forward, you know, to 20, 30 years, so, so from to the the person I've become, which is is all about um, uh, helping people to 
get more out of life, um, you know, as I call it, tearing chunks out of life, uh, about utilising adventure and physical challenge and mental challenge and, and, uh, and personal growth as, uh, as a way of, of developing themselves. Um, and, and leading people, you know, I've, I've been a Trek leader, I, I lead groups, I, I uh, lead people through process, etc. Back as a teenager, <laughs> teenager, I was leading them down to behind the bike sheds to, to, to get into trouble for doing something. Mm. Um, now, I, it's, it's funny, experience make the, you know, there's that saying, experience maketh the man. And the experiences I did have then, some, some of them I, look, I do look back and you can't help but cringe. Um, and I wouldn't be who I am today and be able to approach people with the, the knowledge and insights at times that I have if I hadn't had to go down through those paths, if I hadn't been so lost. And I was really, really lost. Because what I'm really curious about, Joe, you know, is part of why I started this podcast was to get high performers on and really understand their story in their entirety. And as humans, we've all faced adversity. And what I'm really passionate about is understanding how people overcome adversity. And I know, you know, why I linger sort of in this area of your life is that to my awareness, you had a point that was almost the breakdown to break through. What can you sort of share that experience with us and sort of along yes. the journey of what came out of that experience, which has obviously led you on this path now that what you're still doing at the moment? So, okay, so I, my, my path was a kind of a descent. So I, I started getting into trouble at school. Dad, dad was away a lot. Uh, you know, in those days, travel was a, a lot, uh, everything took a lot longer. So dad, dad's trips were, were big, long trips. He could be away for three months on one trip. Um, and then he'd be away all the autumn season in the UK, which is the, the lecture season, when all the uh, various people would be driving around and giving lectures around the, the country. So so my poor old mum had to, mum ended up just being this voice on the other end of the phone, crying voice because she'd been run by the school again um, because, you know, I'd got into a fight with somebody, I'd stolen something or um, I'd come home on weekends and whilst I was at home, I'd steal loads of alcohol out of the uh, mum and dad's drink cabinet, mix it all up in jam jars and take it back to school and get myself and somebody else drunk or, or whatever. Um, but then after that, I, when I left, so, so I got, I got into some, I did some pretty stupid things, uh, that got me into trouble with the police at the school. Um, and the police got called into school. And so I got expelled at the age of 16. Um, and that was the end of my school career. Mum and dad, were determined that this carry on. So that the one thing that I enjoyed doing and and uh, loved doing was was cooking. So I ended ended up going to cater to uh, tech, which is the equivalent of the Australian TAFE, um, and doing um, a diploma in um, hotel management. And um, 
And again, there, so I was 16. Um, and things were very lax in the UK at the time. You know, it, it wasn't as strict around drinking and stuff like that there. You could go to, you know, you'd go to your pub with your dad at the age of 16 and the barman would serve you. Um, and I, I threw myself headlong into college life um, and discovered, you know, I, I just didn't have an off button. Um, and so I started enjoying the extracurricular activities more and more um, and then ended up flunking out of, um, flunking out of college and ended up down in, in London. And, and down there, it was just a slippery slope. I was just um, uh, getting involved more and more with, uh, with drugs and with petty crime. And the lowest point was I'd, I'd ended up, I was sitting in, I very, I can almost feel the walls around me now. I ended up in uh, a jail cell um, at Hammersmith Police Station, um, uh, charged with quite a serious event. And... And it was there, I can almost remember thinking that I'd thought everything was a game um, until then. And all of a sudden, as my whole world came crashing, crashing down around me, everything all of a sudden got very, very real. Um, because whilst I'd been living in London for a, a while, you know, Mum and dad didn't get to see what I was up to on a daily basis. They didn't get to see all of it was hidden from their their eyes. Um, and they they knew. And I, you know, after talking to them later on in, in later years, they knew what was going on. But, you know, as my mum it was a firm believer of somebody can't help uh you can't help somebody until they want to help themselves. So they kind of kept some of that at, at arm's length and just tried to help me where they where they could. I was just so lost and so in deep. Um, and I ended up getting charged and uh, ended up in Crown Court. And then, of course, the newspapers caught hold of it and worked out who I was. And the next thing, you know, there was um, reporters accosting my, my poor grandmother in, in Keswick and um people following my mum and dad down the street with camera the whole paparazzi thing it was just insane um and it it was then that for the first time that i actually really saw uh what what my you know what's the, what's the word i'm looking for um what the impact of, of the implications of, of what I was doing um, uh, or what I had done um, and how that was affecting all those around me. Um, so luckily I was found uh, not guilty because uh, I was looking at a custodial sentence. I think that that would have been a custodial sentence. If I'd have had 
that I've made a lot of stupid mistakes, but I, I wasn't a bad person. And I think a custodial sentence, I probably wouldn't be sitting talking to you here now. Um, as it was, uh, I managed to, uh, I was found not guilty, managed to avoid the, the prison system. Um, and it was from there that I had a long climb back out from where I was. And I'm not going to say it was, it was, you know, turned around moment of enlightenment <laughs> and, and an epiphany, the clouds opened and a ray of sunshine came down and <laughs> shone itself on me, you know, thou art saved. Um, I, you know, I did have some mishaps over the the, the next few years and, and all of that, but I, I was on the right path again. The thing that ignited what was to become a lifelong passion was um, they sent me, there was a guy, a personal development guru, American guy at the time, um, who's now passed on called Lou Tice, who used to run a program called the Pacific Institute that I believe at one time was quite big in, in Australia um, as well. Um, and they sent me on a junior uh, version of that. So it was kind of, it was specifically aimed at kids, but it was all very Tony Robbins-ish. Um, but it was aimed uh, at teens. I went on that and I absolutely loved it. And then I think, and I think it was my mum instigated this. She persuaded dad that, that, that me and dad should actually do the adult one together. Um, and that was, that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and um, so that was the start of the, of the road back, basically. Um, I started finding, you know, passions that I was into uh, outside of the life I'd had before. And uh, I was very into my music and, and all that. So I, I'd spent uh, a number of years in the music industry. Um, I enjoyed the music industry, but it, it wasn't, um, there were too many, the music industry is still the music industry and there's still too many, um, influences around that weren't good for me um so eventually i i got uh out of that I, I didn't like who i was becoming um and by that time i'd met my australian wife um and we um we moved over here by that time i just wanted i just wanted to do something real i mean the it had been great being in the music industry and it was a fun time in my my 20s and uh, again, it was just more exploring and exploring relationships and what I could do. And I, I worked as a record label manager. I used to, and a, a P and D manager, which means that I had to coordinate the relationship between the uh, the PR and the release and 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 the artists and, and all that kind of stuff. And so that that was actually really good and great skills that I've carried through into all other aspects of of what I do do now. But um, but it's very very shallow industry, and um, and so I, I by the time I came over here, I ju I just wanted to go and I wanted to go and build a school with my bare hands in Somalia or something. I, I just wanted to to do something real. And I wanted to give back. I thought it was time I actually did something for other people, something beyond the end of my nose. So I was thirty by this time. Um, and 
Um, and so then I, I started actually getting myself fit again as well. Um, and getting myself fit and really enjoyed that process. And I then also got into uh, some ultra running and did the one of the very first Oxfam trail walkers uh, as a running team. Um, I loved the process and, and I thought, okay, yeah, look, there's something I could do here. And I actually, when I came out, when I came over, so I'd said I'd wanted to give something back and I couldn't think what to do. So as we traveled over here, when I got here, I got a, a job in an outdoor store with Paddy Palin and I've been raised in the country and even before all the, the, the drugs and all that, I'd, I've always had this uh, this love of nature and of the external world and the envir environment around me and, and its relation with each other. So um, I took myself off to TAFE and here am I in, in this other country where all the plants look so different. You know, back home, I knew I knew all the meadow plants. I knew all the um, uh, the wildlife that uh, that you could find in the hedgerows. Um, uh, I knew the birds, etc. And I got to this place where all of this was alien to me. So I thought, okay, well, I took myself off and I took a cert for in bush regen and and started doing conservation work. And I thought, okay, well, look, whilst I'm out there pulling weeds and, and, and learning about this environment I'm in. It's a perfect environment. We work out what to do next. And then it was then that, you know, whilst that was going on, that I was getting myself really fit again. Um, I now had an opportunity to go on another trip. Um, Dad had asked um, uh, if I wanted to to go uh, and do an unclimbed peak, uh, which I jumped at the chance, and and so um, yeah, so from there, yeah, so from there, I'd um, uh, I'd got this chance to do this unclimbed peak. I had these ideas formulating because I'd enjoyed this journey back to to fitness and to health and to well being, and. I'd already decided to become a personal trainer um, or the idea was there. And then in 2000, we went and climbed this unclimbed peak in the Kanchenjunga region uh, called Danga, uh, sorry, called Danga 2. And it was whilst I was there, the Kanchenjunga region had only just been opened up. And the whole time we were there, it just shows the difference to, to more recent years in Nepal. We were only, we were, out outside of Kathmandu and on the expedition for about four or five weeks. Um, and we only saw about five other Western parties wow. in that whole time. Um, and of one or two of those, as we passed people and were walking, there was people there who should have been looking at the the mountains around them, but they were so buggered. They were just heads down looking at their feet and looking not very well at all. Um, and I thought, oh, this, I think there's an opportunity here. And so when I came back to Sydney, 2000, I then qualified as a, as a PT. Um, 
but then quickly quickly realized that with the way that the adventure travel industry wasn't as mature as it has been in recent years, I was going to starve to, <laughs> to death. So um, so I then I started, you know, training stressed out executives and overweight mums and um, and all this at, my, at uh, my local fitness first. But all in the meantime, I, I always had my eye on this other side, which was training people for, originally I, I set up a, a thing called Trek Fit and uh, training people for for treks. And, and so I then started getting a couple of people uh, to do that. And, and then, then I got... Um, got more more people for places like Killy and for Everest Base Camp and that. And then I got a, a call from uh, one of the directors at, um, at Fitness First, who I didn't know even knew my name, um, and said, oh, we've got somebody we'd like you to, to talk to. He'd like to, uh, he wants to, to climb Everest. We think you'd be the, the best person uh, to do it. And so I met a, a guy called Steve Bock and I ended up um, training what was then Australia's most successful Everest expedition. They put five, five Australians on the summit. There was eight people in the expedition. There was five, five Australians and three South Africans. And um, I trained all the uh, uh, Australians and they all made it. And uh, some somebody else trained all the the sappers, and unfortunately, unfortunately, they didn't. They, um, <laughs> they 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 were okay. They just didn't get to the top. But um, but yeah. So um, and that's yeah. And then and then from there, I really wanted to. I knew that this this was definitely my my space. I know, and I just I I absolutely love what I do. Like I mm. I love with an absolute passion. I love everything about it. I love exploring it. I love, um, I love the amount, the fact that there is, it's, it's not a, a finite, uh, sports science, etc. It's not a finite subject. You can't say, okay, we know all there is to know. We're constantly finding out more. And that, uh, appeals to me, you know, as we've talked before the, the interview, we had that quick chat about, you know, I like yourself. I'm a complete course junkie. I'm an education junkie. I just love, I love learning. Um, and there is so much to, to learn. So yeah, so I've, I've been doing that ever since, since and now it's, well, it's over 20 years, you know, and I've been really lucky. I've worked with some amazing people and we've um, had people doing some amazing things all around the world. And you've obviously had clients from all walks of life. What is it that you've really learned about people through working with them over the last 20 years? Well, this is, I love this question. Um, <laughs> so I, it's really, really interesting, but pe people are so different and, and people, a lot of people in my industry, they just want to work with the best. They want to work mm. with the committed athletes and, and, and that that's their their ideal. And look, don't get me wrong, working with people like that is great. There is something really satisfying about having somebody because those people don't question you. They they just they want to know what will get them a result, and they will you tell them to do it, and they'll just bloody do it. And they will keep on doing it until it doesn't get a result. Okay. Right. Um, and they're they're utterly committed. But they are they are an infinitesimal 
proportion of the people that we we train as as publicly focused uh, coaches and and uh, strength and conditioning coaches. You know, I'm not a paid. I'm a qualified strength and conditioning coach uh, as well as a personal trainer, but I don't work for a team. I don't work uh, for people who are being paid. Uh, and my sole income comes from working with these type of people, you know. And the, but the amazing thing is I've got all these people. So say you've got 100 people and, and 10% of them are these absolute committed, you know, adventure-seeking, high-achieving high automatons. Um, and they're not automatons. They're, they're awesome people. But it's, it's the rest of them who both drive me absolutely nuts, um, but are also the most interesting because it, it's when you see somebody who you you know what they need to do and you know what they, and they know what they need to do, but try, trying to, and they want the same result as, as Automaton over here, but they... They can't, you can tell, you can tell the press will do it and they'll do it. And then Joe Public will say, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. But you've got to make it interesting. It's got to be fun. You know, whereas the other person, they don't care whether they just, does this get me results? Okay, I'll do it. Okay. Whereas the other one say, yeah, 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 I really, really want results. Yeah, can you make it fun as well, please? And can I also do my CrossFit cast on a Tuesday? I'm doing Zumba on a Wednesday. <laughs> And, and I'd like to do this. Oh, by the way, I'm not giving up alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it it's really funny. Try, and it's, I love trying to navigate that. Sometimes it drives me nuts. Sometimes, my, as my clients will tell you, sometimes I, I sorry, uh, for the language, I'll lose my shit uh, <laughs> at them if, if they, they just haven't done whatever it is for the umpteenth time and are still expecting a different result. Um, <laughs> But uh, but it's great. But it's those it's those people. It's some of the people. I, I won't mention her name, but the, there's one client uh, in particular who was so scared of everything. She she had such low self esteem, um, and she since she's she's travelled with me, been on treks that I've led, etc. But you know, for her doing her first pull-up um, or being able to, to, to get her head around jumping onto a box um, was as important um, as somebody crossing a country for the first time. Mm. You know, so, as far as... The, so beautiful. The, you know, the, the difference there, you know, what I'm about is it's... It's you know it's it's about helping people uh, get the most that they can out of life. I absolutely love that, Joe, and I I couldn't agree more. You know, I think sometimes we can focus on you know this this summiting Everest is the most important thing, but I think it is just important as someone that you know may feel a little fearful in life, and it's about taking that first step or that first jump or that first pull up that yeah. can is is really what it's all about. Yeah, and, and then because then after if if you've gained somebody's trust to do, and this is my whole ethos around things, if you've gained their trust for them to be able to do that, and you can see. They've trusted you to, to learn the process and to do the process to do that. Well, then 
maybe I can take that person and persuade them to leave the gym and come with me for a trail run. Okay. Then they do the trail run and they survive that. And it's okay. Well, look, why don't you come with me? We're going to do an overnight bushwalk and they do that. And it's okay. I reckon you could do a multi-day walk and they could do that. And now, now, now by now as well, this, whoever it is, it might be a town, you know, complete townie who's never even thought about the bush or the environment. You're now exposing them to uh, some of Australia's beautiful wilderness. And they're seeing, I, I get amazed when I see people, and even my wife, you know, who, you know, she was born, raised, and raised here. And, and yet I've seen so much more of Australia's wildlife than, than she has, you know, and it's once we, Get, if I can get people out and that they can see a yellow-tailed black cockatoo, if they can see that, look, there's a red-bellied black snake, if you leave it alone, it's fine. Mm. Um, that, you know, oh, here's the, the, scats of, um, uh, the scats of a fox. Uh, you know, it's a shame that that's, that's there and this is the impact that it's having. Um, you know, look at this beautiful bush. Oh, and look, here you can actually see because of the runoff from the plateau that we've got some lantana and some wheat sources coming in down into the bottom of the valley. And this will be the effect that this has on this place eventually. You know, and so you can start teaching people and educating people that. And then from there, I can then maybe persuade them if they've done that and they enjoyed that. Well, hey, let's go to another country. Why don't we go and go to um, the Dolpo region of Nepal or, or just a bucket list place. Let's go and do Everest Base Camp or something like that. And then all of a sudden you've got this person who's never been on a, uh, a trip to a third world country or if they have, it was uh, you know somewhere like Bali and they were in a resort, that they're now going out and they're interacting with another culture um, with with people with different beliefs, with different spirituality, and they're immersed in it. And they're all traveling together towards one goal. And it's been a whole journey. And if we can do that with people and you can then see their face when they get to wherever it is that we're, we're going to, and you can see on their face that you have not just changed their sense of achievement uh, and their self-esteem in themselves, but you've actually changed how they view the world and how they view their fellow man. And that is really worth it because they they haven't just explored and been exploring this time. Whilst they've been doing that, uh, inertly they're, they're exploring themselves as well. And do you think that's what pulls people to Joe's base camp is that that idea of self-exploration? I I think, yeah, this, again, really interesting question. These are great questions. Um, <laughs> I, I think people, if you were to ask, like if I was to run a marketing campaign, I don't think you'd go in with the self-exploration. I think that's the bonus because people, people don't know what they don't know. Right. People don't know that they need self-exploration. And if they don't know it, they don't care. Mm -hmm. It's only afterwards. And it's funny, I've had quite a few of these talks and, and 
and with friends and and people who've literally and that people who came to Joe's base camp not because it's the place for adventurers but they were just referrals from friends of friends you know you've got to go there Joe's really good or you know it's it's just a bit different or or you know whatever and they they've got there and they, they've come there because they are traditionally you know they're, they're an accountant and they're they're 40 and and they're you know they're, they're drinking a bit too much at the weekends and um and all this and they're not losing weight and once we they immersed in the culture and we're doing the other stuff and we start challenging them in these other areas they actually start looking inwards on themselves then mm. and I think that's that's the the bonus and that's it's not it's not necessarily at the moment uh, or in the gym environment um, something that you could market to and get the, the gym to survive on. Mm. Online's different. I mean, online, because then you can actually seek out, you know, the 7 billion people on the planet or whatever. I can actually market to, okay, you know, are you adventurous and looking for personal development, you know, and, and then, you know, if you spend enough Facebook advert dollar, dollars, eventually <laughs> you're going to find them, you know. So what is um, what is Joe's base camp in present day? Because, you know, I'm an avid follower of your business, Joe, and I know during COVID times things are sort of changing and evolving. What's the update with where you're at at the moment? Yeah, so we've, I won't lie, we, we've had a really, really tough couple of years. The whole of the, the fitness industry has been struggling, mm. I think, we we've been hit especially hard because we're about adventure our, our focus is around adventure and events so we're about helping people find goals and then train for those goals all of our events have been cancelled and all the borders are still closed so even when we opened up again um people still weren't training for those things because the events were still cancelled borders are still closed and we um, basically the last the last two years has basically been death by a thousand cuts. It really has, and it, it's funny. Me, me and my general manager uh, Megan were um, we were had all these great plans. We've got we've got awesome connections and, and networks. You know, like I'm, I work a lot with the Australian Himalayan Foundation. Um, we work a lot with uh, the North Face. Um, with Australian Geographic, um, et cetera. And we had all these amazing plans and these things that we were going to, to do with them that we sat down, we did a um, did a, an off-site uh, uh, end of 2019 of all this fantastic stuff we we're going to do. And then come January 2020, the world changed. And... Um, and unfortunately, we couldn't recover. So it, um, the last lockdown was, um, it had been slowly, our, our membership base had slowly been declining over those two years. And then uh, the last lockdown, I, I made a decision that Joe's Base Camp isn't going to, to reopen. 
I am, um, but the it's a good thing. So not a bad thing. It, it was very, very sad to do. It was uh, ripping the Band-Aid off was the hardest, but it was very emotional. The uh, More than a few tears were shed uh, by all involved. Um, making the decision was the hardest part. That, that was really tough. Uh, Realising, looking at the numbers and thinking, we, we just can't come back from this. Um, then telling the staff and telling the members that was... That was really tough. That was that was hard. Um, but then after that, it's it's just been about getting getting things done, the tasks that are involved. Learned a lot. I never knew closing down a business was uh, was so involved and also so expensive <laughs> as, as well. I hadn't, hadn't counted on that. That doesn't but, make sense. <laughs> no. Um, and but one one of the things that that. The, the, one of the many great things that has come out of this is a couple of years ago. So I, I'd, I'd always had this idea that Joe's base camp, I wanted to build this, this Mecca for outdoor adventure training. But you know, at the end of the day, the Northern beaches of Sydney, this isn't Queenstown. It's not Chamonix in France. It's not Jackson hole in Wyoming. It's, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not the place that you think of for adventurers to, to congregate, uh, et cetera. Um, and I'd always thought that, look, if I can just build it that as long as it pays for itself, I had this idea that I wanted somewhere that was real, that we could practice on real people um, and we'd have a hub for people to go to. Um, I'll be honest, I think that was a, a bit of a nice to have because I, I'd always known that, my future was online um, where I had people and I was already start writing programs for, for people um, in who were out of area, interstate, international. Um, but then the last two years, I thought, okay, with the first lockdown, I said, okay, well, let's really drive this. And I've got a, a very good friend of mine who's actually in the marketing game, um, a guy called Howard Tinker, um, who's a, uh, uh, he does uh, marketing for restaurants and all that. And he, he said to me, he said, Joe, um, uh, it's very hard for a jockey to ride two horses in the same race. And that was really, really true because <clears throat> we're not a big business. I, I, I don't have tons of resources. Both uh, us in the office at Joe's Base Camp were both chiefs, cooks, and bottle washers. You know, we, we had to do everything. And when the business was starting to fail because of COVID, we kept on getting pulled back into, I was trying to focus on getting this online model right, but I kept on getting pulled back into, we've got to do another marketing campaign to get members and we've mm. got to do this. We, we've got to, you know, and it, that was just something that, that how needed to be done it had to be done but it was taking me away from in actual fact where where our future and where the real money um and and it's this isn't just about money by the way it's uh just the the things that allow me to do the things i want to do to help the people i want to help um uh, are and um and that the, the closing down of the gym uh, really made me realise that. But when I was making that decision, I was thinking, okay, there's all this stuff that 
I haven't been able to do that's been on my to-do list for, for years, some big projects um, that this is stopping me from because I'm always getting pulled pulled back into this. And um, and so now, you know, here I am, we, we just handed back the keys and had to do what they call a make good, which is, this is one of the things that I didn't know about when uh, closing down a business, which is where, because we actually had to break the lease. Um, so I was up for uh, possibly $300,000. But luckily, luckily somebody, an owner-occupier bought the building. Um, and so that got me off the hook, um, which is absolutely fantastic. And it was, yeah, such, you can't believe the weight off my back that that, that was. Um but now here I am halfway through September and I'm just, I've been decompressing. I haven't rushed into things and I'm just, um, I've got an opportunity to do something here really well. I've got the opportunity to do things properly. Um, so I'm just taking my time and getting back into it. But the, the immediate um, relief I'm feeling already from not having I mean, my our gym was was huge. You know, it was, it was 800 square meters. It was a big place, and it, it was it was state of the art. It had a, a climbing wall, an altitude chamber, um, all of this. But that comes with a huge rent. Um, and then also, you know, Joe's Base Camp had grown to this thing. All of a sudden, I had to, I went from being the Joe Show to having ten staff, um, and. And even though I, I, my members absolutely love what I do and are very engaged and, and uh, um, great with those relationships, I don't know if I'm a great manager. Um, and start the whole staff thing, staff so hard, managing staff. Oh. So, um, so anyway, so now here I am in, in the sunroom of, of my house at home <laughs> talking to you um with with no lease with um uh, with no payroll costs and um and easing myself back into the into the online world and feeling really 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 good it had been sad closing down joe's base camp and sad admitting to myself okay yeah this this wasn't the right model but um uh, yeah in a good place yeah, I totally understand. And, you know, it is the way in which our future is leading us is online. And I can totally empathize with you because, you know, I work online myself and there is that aspect of human connection that I really miss. And, you know, obviously post-COVID, I'll be seeking that in other ways. Um, yeah. But I, I totally get the idea of, you know, going into a space of, you know, collective like-minded individuals and it's there's something so beautiful about that. And, you know, I have no doubt that you'll still be able to create that in your own way moving forward. You have such a beautiful community, well, Joe. And I know, and, that, that's, and that's, that's one side. And tra training online is not for everybody. There's some people mm -hmm. who just don't want to do it. And that, that's fair enough, and I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. The, the community itself, you know, once this is over, because I can still, we can still have meetups, you know, there's great organisations like Meetup that we can, you know, we can organise things like that and actually have that community to still meet up. So because, you know, that's what Joe's 
Joe's base camp really, really was about the people who had gone in there and who were part of it. We had, um, we had uh, trekkers, mountaineers, um, polar travellers, um, uh, ocean kayakers, um, uh, ultra marathon trail runners, um, just all people who just wanted to to do a combination of um, explore the world around them, explore their own physical limits, explore their own mental limits, um, and do it in uh, in an outdoor and wilderness setting. And yeah, I just want to spend my time around people like that. Oh, I am <laughs> with like- you there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just it just makes for a lot better conversations. It does, and I'm really yeah. curious, Joe, because obviously you you've worked with you know some of the best adventurers and athletes in terms of sort of the the mental and physical limitations and in expanding them. What are some of the mindset strategies that you teach your clients that you feel have been or have played a, a big part in their achievement and success? I'd say I'd say the first thing is around working around your values and core beliefs. I, I really I really think that is if I and just talking from from personal experience that the times when things have gone wrong in my life um, and the times when things don't work out, yeah, there might be various uh, external and environmental factors that can contribute to those, but nine times out of ten you've stepped outside of your value system. Mm. So I think if you can get very, very clear on your value system and as to why you're doing something and where that fits in in your world, then you've got a lot better chance because, uh, you know, succeeding on an expedition isn't just about what's actually happening on the mountain. It's the whole process that gets you to the mountain. And if your value system isn't solid, and you're, you know, you're, you say you're going on a, um, say, let's, let's pick for, for somebody, for, you know, a, a, a listener at home who is just doing their first bucket list trip. They're going to Everest Base Camp or to Kilimanjaro or something like that. Um, it is the why that they're doing it, which is the thing that's going to get them up in the morning when it's dark, it's cold, they've got a bit of a cold um pissing down with rain and they just want to um roll over hit the snooze button again if they're clear on their values and their why they're going to get up Mm. if they're not they'll roll over hit the snooze button so that's that's one of the um one of the things um and the other is the practice of practice so it's just doing, getting the reps in, just doing the work. And you can practice practice, not necessarily just by doing the exercise side, but the practice of practice in other areas. So, you know, uh, I encourage people to do a whole number of things, um, journaling, meditation, juggling, um, and if they can, not for everybody, but um, hand balancing or handstand practice as well because the with those last two as well not 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 with those last two with all four of them they're not something that you can get right you've got to a point okay 
you you've got it you've nailed it that that's it they're all practices that can be built on can be built on can be built on can be built on and they have to be practiced regularly you know and um if you can do those consistently, you'll start finding that you're able to be more consistent in other areas of your life as well. Mm. So we do, um, yeah, stuff like that. I love that. And it got me thinking because, you know, even myself personally, I, I got into ultra marathon running just before sort of COVID, the year before COVID. And I've had quite a lot of runs booked and quite a lot of runs cancelled or scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Yeah. I'm just sort of, you know, um, on the computer, fast forwarding to the next year. And, you know, it, it has been challenging and, it, and I've had to sort of reassess and reset in the way that I approach this. And I'm, I'm really interested in your advice around this because I think there, you know, there are the people in the bucket sort of like me that have been training for things and they're rescheduled and cancelled. Or there are people that have sort of, you know, maybe wanting to plan their first goal or whatever it is, but putting it off during COVID. Is there any advice that you have or even have seen within, you know, your clients in how to still achieve things and still, you know, progress and expand your potential in a time like this where things are very different? Yeah, look, de definitely. I think what what people need to do is just is, is reset and reevaluate. So I, I have this whole process um, when we're goal setting with people, when we're, we're creating a vision, um, so so I call it X marks a spot. So I want you to imagine that you have a treasure map, okay? And like a, any old fashioned map, you know, there's hardly any details on it at all. And you've put your big red X, X marks a spot, and that might be your event or, or whatever. Now, as we fill in that treasure map, like with the features and the contour lines and stuff like that. Now, the features and the contour lines, they're all um, the skills and the abilities that are needed to, uh, to get there. So skills as in, okay, trail running, do I need to become better at downhill running? You know, because people don't realise downhill trail running or the downhill component of trail running is a skill that needs to be practised and, um, and worked on. Then physical ability. So, so skills and abilities are slightly different. So uh, abilities, physical ability, what do I need to, to be to do this? Where do I need to be uh, as far as my physical abilities? Do I need to be stronger? Do I need to be faster? Do I need to have a larger aerobic capacity? Um, you know, how good's my engine? Uh, and generally pull that all together. And then we start talking about resilient. How resilient am I? How robust am I as an athlete? Um, and so as you start filling that, that actually starts filling in the, the, the contours and the features of your map, okay? Now, any map that you have, that's the X is where you're going to go, that you've got the contours and the features. And what a map, there's a term in, um, if you're familiar with NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, they, they have a saying in that the map is not the territory, okay? So the map is not exactly what's out there. It's a representation of what's out there. And what you can't see on the map are things like the rockfall that happened, the, the logs that came down over the path during a rainstorm, the, um, the flooding, the, the stuff like that. 
That you can only see in the territory. Now, COVID, this, this isn't just a, a rockfall. This is a bloody earthquake um, <laughs> that, that's happening to, to ours. But it means that if we've still got X marks a spot and we've still got all these features here, we, we just need to find another route. Okay, so we just look at it. Okay, well, what can I do? And it gets back to this whole um, whole thing, control the things that um, work on the things that you can control and forget about the things that you can't. There's a load of stuff that we can't control. Um, and I, I do find it funny. I do have this quite a few people and, and some of them novices, as you'd expect, but I'm surprised at the amount of people who are actually reasonably experienced in various adventure fields who are actually really struggling with the limitations of COVID. They're, they're having a meltdown um, because they can't do the things that they need to do. Now, look, I, I know they might have financial pressures, though. If they're, if they're in the fitness, sorry, in the um, adventure industry and it's their, um, their livelihood, well, there's a hell of a lot of pressure there. But... I still believe that even with that, you know, here you're talking to somebody who's just lost their business. They've just, I've just lost my 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 gym because of COVID, direct result of. Um, and okay, well, I, I'm really looking at. I I wasn't here just to have a gym. Mm-hmm. I'm here to help people get the most out of their lives using physical, mental right. challenge, and adventure. So, what are the things that I can do? How can I work towards it? So. So very convoluted way, but let's get back onto your your trail runner training for the cancelled event. Is it's literally if you know about programming, well, in programming we have various aspects to our program. Um, when we program, we have a preparatory phase at the beginning. We then have our base phase. We then have what I call a climb phase. Others, other people call it a peak phase. We then have a taper, and we then have the event. Okay. So you just pull back and you go back to your base phase and you work your base phase, okay? The base phase is actually, um, we're going to get into the technicalities of um, uh, of aerobic, uh, aerobic engines here, but basically when we build, when we are building our aerobic capacity and when we are building our, our engine as an athlete, the vast majority of that is done during the base phase okay so this isn't doing all the fancy stuff and the the, the hill sprints and and working on our metabolic system so we've got two very different engines we've got a metabolic engine and we've got our, our aerobic engine now the aerobic engine is the one that takes the longest to build so if your event has been cancelled fantastic that's brilliant you've got more time to build your engine the reason why Killian Journey is the amazing athlete that he is is that his mum and dad started him training and him doing big, long uh, hikes and runs from a very early age. And this is the advantage that he's got over every single other athlete because they all started in their uh, teens and in their 20s. He started as a kid. He's got like 10 years on on everybody. He's always going to be 10 years ahead of everybody. Um, And we know that it can... Uh, take a minimum of two seasons to maximize our aerobic capacity. Now, most people, because we've all got, uh, or so many people have got exercise ADD, um, that 
they don't want to give it two years to spend time doing lots of long and slow. They just want to get into the the uh, the cool stuff and they want to book another event and they want to book this event and that event and and they 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 have all these races with hardly any time to recover in between. Now they're being forced to recover, hopefully, as long as they've just not taken themselves off and are smashing themselves that they can lie in a pool pool heaving sweat somewhere, which isn't actually achieving what they want to or what they need to. <laughs> yeah, I Sorry, I was been... off, on a, off on a rant there. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I find it very interesting because I think it's it has been one of those times where, you know, people are, like you suggested, people are sort of so busy sort of doing one event and then booking the another and they're just sort of oh. on this flow. And, you know, I feel like COVID's been so beautiful for them because I, I know in my own experience, having to slow down and reset has been extremely amazing for me. But yeah. I've been fortunate enough to have, you know, the, the mindset right for that to sort of happen that way. I think there are some people out there that obviously, you know, I do see it in ultra marathon running. It's an outlet. It's a form of escapism. And when yeah. they no longer have this form of outlet, that's when, you know, people turn to drugs and alcohol and all these other things that maybe they wouldn't yeah. normally do, not in the constraints of COVID. So, you know, I think like you're suggesting, it's so important to keep that sort of that goal in 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 the forefront of your head and just adapt the process, but still be moving in the right direction. Yeah, still still move there. And you can do things, you can you can cheat yourself a little bit as well. So I, I know uh, plenty of people who are actually on events that are being cancelled. Uh, actually, as long as it's within the the, the right state or, or whatever, are actually going and then running the course. A bunch of them are going and running the course on that date themselves. Um, and so they're giving themselves their, their own little... Uh, event the important thing there though is that if we're trying to you know it's my belief that a lot of people run way too many events um, and they run them it's not the running of the events it's the fact that they're running every single one as an a race and it should be i have this whole thing about a b and c class races um and the the c class ones we should run it as if it's part of our training we don't taper to go into it we don't try and get our best time we just do it for the community. We do it to be on the course. We do it to test out our current level of fitness, uh, et cetera. Just do more of that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. So, Joe, thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. It was such a pleasure to get to know you and your background more. And, you know, I'm a little biased, but I am excited for what Joe's base camp is going to evolve into. Um, you know, I feel like we have a similar headspace, very grateful for the opportunity. And I know that you're going to do amazing things for incredible and extraordinary people. So I really honor you for that. Thank you. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure being here. It's, it's been great. Great oh, good. Oh, thank you, Joe. I would love to ask you on a final note, Joe, what does it mean to you to be human? What does it mean to me to be human? Um, to be human, it's it's to to share experiences and to be able to help one it's to help one another, you know. And if if I can, it's using the tools that you have as an individual 
to do your best for all of those around you. You know, mine happened to be around coaching and around my knowledge of uh, of a combination of physical exercise and wilderness adventure sports. If I can use those to help people be better people uh, and to help people get most out of their life, then I've done. Um, I'm, I'm doing. I'm doing okay. Um, you know, it's, I, I really am here to help people lead a, uh, a fitter, a more fulfilled, more engaged, and more passionate and adventurous life. Um, for other people, that it's it's the same thing. It's just it's whatever tools that they've been blessed with, that they've developed. We want to use it to help each other. You know. Life's, life's not a solo sport. We might be involved in solo sports, but life isn't a solo sport. It's a team sport. And if we can actually spend more time with each other and helping each other, um, I think the world's going to be a lot better place.